This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Certainly all the signs are very bad for the Republicans going into 2018. This is obviously a, a shot in the arm. And for President Trump, it was, a, it was a pretty big blow. Donald Trump, you don't stand for our values. This was a candidate about whom his own daughter Ivanka said there's a special place in hell for those who prey on children. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So we didn't have a show yesterday because it was Doug Jones Day. We had stayed up way too late the night before learning about the vagaries of counties in Alabama, which ones go red, which ones go dark red, which ones fall off the spectrum of infrared so much that they can only be seen under special lights. And which ones go blue? We're getting a new Democratic senator for Hanukkah. So hug some Mayak Trumpcast listeners. The only thing curbing my enthusiasm today is, okay, I did something stupid. I acted on a long-standing resentment of Breitbart, that psycho GeoCities site by Steve Bannon that maybe doesn't exist anymore, on Alabama's election eve. Basically, long ago after that election in November that Trump vomit won, Breitbart posted Kate McKinnon's performance of Alleluia from SNL and said, we did it, fam. We broke them. And oh, I did not forget that. So when Doug Jones beat Breitbart favorite Chester the Molester Roy Moore, I reprised We Did It Fam, We Broke Them, and that did break them. I broke Breitbart. So they went after me ad hominem today, and that means lots of bots and doxing and trolling, and it's a lot of fun like a video game like Angry Birds. And I tell you, and I'm telling you, yeah, this to humble brag or maybe just real brag, that I may not have hit the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is, of course, being blocked by Trump. But getting slagged off by Breitbart is pretty big for someone who's just a concerned citizen like myself. And speaking of concerned citizens, my guest today is Walter Schaub, one of my favorite concerned citizens, late of the Office of Government Ethics and a wellspring of concern for the administration's scorched earth approach to ethics. But not only does he clutch his pearls like I do, he knows his shit, and he's going to tell us exactly where this administration has gone ethically wrong but also how agency heads like James Comey, for example, can themselves go grievously wrong when they decide we're a nation of self-righteous supermen rather than laws. I'll be back with Walter in just a minute. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and Walter M. Schaub Jr. is Senior Director of Ethics at the Campaign Legal Center. He's also the former director of the Office of Government Ethics, and as his millennial fans say, he's O-G-O-G-E. He's also on Twitter at Walt Schaub. That's at W-A-L-T-S-H-A-U-B. Welcome, Walter. Yes, yes. Thanks for having me on Trumpcast. I know you're a fan of the show, or you've at least listened once or twice. And you probably know we talk a lot about criminal misconduct in this administration and also the Mueller investigation. Right. But we also And we also talk about violations of norms. Those are the kind of fun ones. But today we're talking about that middle ground. Maybe you disagree with me, but it seems, seems like a middle ground between manners and norms and crimes is ethics. So today we're talking about all things ethics. And since it's newly hip to be square and you're one of the heartthrobs of ethics right now, along with Richard Painter and Norma Eisen, maybe you can tell us where ethics come in to this administration that seems to want to run roughshod over them. The idea that ethics is somewhere between criminal law and norms and and everything else, I think I disagree with. The ethics laws include criminal laws. They include laws that come with civil penalties in addition to jail sentences, and they come with administrative requirements that can lead to firing. And so there's quite a wide range. And one narrative that I've been trying to get to catch on, and I really have been gratified to see how much people are using the word norms, is that there's really several elements to the ethics program. You have the baseline rules, and at its heart, the ethics program is a rule-based system. The alternative would be an aspirational values-based system. But the rules-based system sets a floor that you just simply can't go below, that's the bare minimum. Like, if you achieve that, you get to say, I'm not a criminal, which, you know, or or a rule violator, which is a very low standard to set for a person in a high position of public trust. So I've emphasized that there are two other components to it. There's the rules, but there's also the principles, which are literally a thing. There's 14 of them, and they were written by George H.W. Bush back in 1989, or at least his staff running it by him. And it was in an executive order that he issued that is still on the books. OGE OGE being the Office of Government Ethics has incorporated those principles into their regulations and literally say, where one of the regulations doesn't fit, refer to the principles. And a person can actually be disciplined and fired for violating the principles without necessarily violating a specific rule. The third category is the norms and traditions of the executive branch. An example of that, for instance, is the president divesting his financial interests, which has always happened ever since at least the enactment of the Ethics and Government Act in the 70s. And even before that, people took steps to try to mitigate or resolve conflicts of interest. And so... Really, the ethics program spans kind of a broad range of things uh, in the government, and yet at the same time, it's kind of narrow and specialized. So, so tell us, tell us about the fourteen principles, and especially which ones strike you as interesting. So, you know, one of them is one that I actually tweeted out when I was in the Office of Government Ethics, and it uh, wound up 
becoming one of the more controversial tweets we ever did. Uh, and I had people insisting that I be fired because of the outrage of me, in their view, trolling the president. <laughs> and the thing that drove me nuts about it is, how low have we sunken that reciting the prime directive of the executive branch ethics program on an educational Twitter feed of the Office of Government Ethics has become controversial. I think, by the uh, way, Merriam-Webster got in trouble for publishing the definition of a lie, because, of course, that's partisan. <laughs> and then we all remember July 4th, NPR published the whole Declaration of Independence, and once right. again, we're accused of being snowflakes or whatever else. Anyway, so well, yes, carry on. I was a trendsetter. I'm glad that I created <laughs> outrage by reciting public norms before it was all the rage. Yes. Um, so the first principle is literally, number one, public service is a public trust requiring employees to place loyalty to the Constitution, the laws, and ethical principles above private gain. That sounds so mundane and so broadly sleeping, but that became just about our most controversial tweet. And it tracks the international definition of corruption that's most widely used in international groups, which is the misuse of entrusted authority for private gain. Another one was just employees shall disclose fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption to appropriate authorities and so forth. So these are, I just want to warn our listeners, these are pretty incendiary positions. And Trumpcast does oh, not endorse first. honesty yeah. or conscientiousness or the, the strange outlines of the, these culty principles that Walter's telling can us you, about. Yeah. Can you put up like a PG-17 warning on this <laughs> you got it. podcast? You, okay. you got yeah. it. So, um, you know, um, knowing you a little bit, I it always interests me that... I feel like your interest is as much in proceduralism as it is in ethics as a as a general subject, as a philosophical subject. But I want you to put on your actual ethicist hat for a second. You know, one of the discussions of the Logan Act or emoluments, which the administration often says is, you know, hooey or arcane or something nobody cares about, you know, to some extent, the reason we haven't talked so much about emoluments and the Logan Act in the past is because no one would ever think about violating them. It's like I what, think that's right. Right? I think that's right. I mean, that's the whole issue of departing from norms. What we've learned this year is that our ethical infrastructure was built on a premise that there were certain ethical norms in place and people were following them. And when you pull those away, well, that's what was underpinning the legal structure. Um, There are holes in the legal structure because we didn't need laws to address certain things because the political process was enough of an insurance policy. You would face being voted out of office if you behaved in a certain way or impeached. But we are in a time that the level of partisanship is just simply unprecedented. And so when you pointed out that they're saying, oh, well, the Logan Act doesn't matter or the Emoluments Clause is hooey. What they're doing is actually a little more nuanced than, than they would appear to be capable of doing. Right. These are, the, that, these are lawyers saying these things, not Trump on Twitter. So they, they, right, they have right. a little more teeth so maybe to them. They, yeah. And, and what they're really trying to do is a multi-pronged attack. You, you attack the law by saying it's hooey. And what they really mean by hooey, and this would be a legitimate argument in some instances is that if you have a law in the books that hasn't been enforced against everybody and against anybody for a long, long period of time, and then suddenly you're enforcing it against somebody, then maybe this is selective prosecution and you're being unfair 
and that in essence the law has died of its own inactivity. The problem with that assertion is that it assumes that everybody else has been violating it all along. And, um, or the idea that if it has been violated, the police have been aware of it. And so it's like the old excuse when you get pulled over for speeding and maybe you're a teenager and you say, you know, why did you pull me over? Or, or I was going the same speed as everybody else. And the policeman says, well, yes, but I caught you. It just shouldn't be that the highest official in the government is making the, well, everybody else was going fast argument. You're supposed to be the role model. But it also seems like, I mean, that could be the case for using a private email server that, you know, or being careless with emails that we all do this. And um, and why was Hillary Clinton the one, you know, busted for it and put on the front page for it and so on. But for the Logan Act, at least, it does seem like the reason that it just who would possibly think of violating the Logan Act? That's all I. And in fact, the fact that it has been observed for so long and that people haven't been caught for it actually ma- makes it a worse violation. Right, right. Um, you know, in is the Logan Act thought of by OG, considered by OGE or is that someone else's department? No, OGE's um, jurisdiction is really very narrow and very specialized. Um, and, and so, for instance, I mean, you mentioned Hillary Clinton's emails. I, I was bothered by her setting up a personal email server. I don't like that at all. Uh, and my personal suspicion was it was an effort to avoid the Freedom of Information Act. Where they lost me in, in their attack on that was this outrageous claim that this was endangering classified information, because the truth is the State Department has two different email systems, one for classified and one for non-classified. And in fact, there should be no classified information on your non-classified email. So it was an overreach in my sensibility that... Um, I'm actually sorry, but I'm looking at the um, principles of Trumpcast, and we don't (laughs) say but her emails on here. But Um, her emails. But you (laughs) are number one. Okay, good point. You but her emails. I want it. So I want... (laughs) I just wanted to go on record since you mentioned that, that I didn't like that, but I was actually trying to say um, that it was an overreach and blah, 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 but we can move on. Overreach. No, no, no. Overreach, I get it. And that also brings us to one of our I hope we can redact the phrase butter emails, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, <laughs> bringing that up brings us to one of one of yours and my favorite topics, which is James Comey, the former FBI director. I don't want to get into what Comey uh-huh. did right or wrong vis-a-vis the emails, but I do want you to tell us a, a bit about the challenges of running a government agency. And I know OGE is not the FBI, but what are the challenges inside and outside a government agency that James Comey might have faced and that you faced? Well, you know, um, one of the things you have to do at the head of the agency is try to make decisions that are consistent with your agency's mission, its principles, its values. Uh, And there's a lot of hard decisions you face. In fact, if this is career day and I'm talking to future agency heads, I'd say that you are going to spend most of your time just dealing with crises. Nobody comes to you and says, hey, boss, something went ordinary today, or we had nothing go wrong. Um, This project came off okay. They come to you worked up, panicked, saying this thing broke, or this went wrong, or this, and you are 
involved in crisis management. Now, hopefully, if you get good at it, you can at least proactively address the foreseeable dangers, but you are always the one that they have to come to with the hard decisions. And so you make a lot of hard decisions and you try to make as many right ones as you're capable of. You're going to make mistakes. But even when you do the right thing and make the right decision, sometimes you and your agency take a beating. You take a hit and you just have to take that hit um, because that's the role of being in government. And you see this White House's press office bitterly chastising the press or others for questioning them. But you know what? We live in a ostensibly free society and a representative form of government. And it's not only the right, but the responsibility of the public to question its government officials. And they're not always going to do it fairly. But if you try to chill the unfair ones, you're going to inadvertently chill the fair ones. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to take it. Uh, for me, the great sin of James Comey, and I'll, full disclosure, I am not a fan, um, was the idea that it was reportedly a problem dealing with some of the agents who were outraged at him for not coming down on Hillary Clinton, but he made the decision he thought was right. Um, there was criticism from the outside. He feared more criticism. And to sit there and after announcing that you're not going to prosecute somebody, give a public statement about what a terrible person they are and how reckless they are and what terrible mistakes they are is a terrible misuse of federal authority. And you're doing it for your own selfish purposes. You're doing it as the head of the agency to protect your reputation and your agency's reputation because you don't have a thick skin enough to take the criticism for making the decision that you thought was right. And to me, that's an unforgivable sin for an agency head. In this case, you had a private citizen being accused by the government's top law enforcement investigator of essentially being a terrible person. And they cannot come back and defend themselves the way you can in a courtroom if somebody's prosecuting you for a crime that has defined elements and their attorneys can represent them and show why they think those elements are not met. Here you have the court of public opinion and governmental authority standing behind the chastising of a private citizen who has no recourse and no ability to respond or to lay out their side of the case. Do you think if Comey had made that move against even someone who wasn't running for the highest office in the land, that it might have amounted to I don't know, defamation or um, harassment of a private citizen? I mean, is I don't know that it was mm -hmm. necessarily defamatory because, and, and I don't recall every word he said, but it sounded to me in my recollection that he was talking about his opinion, but he's not paid for that opinion. It's not his job to do that opinion. Right. He's just, you know, your Uncle Bob sitting on a porch telling you that opinion when, he, when he's going off script and, and talking about his personal views, mm -hmm. um, his job is to investigate crimes and to uh, present evidence that a crime has been made, committed or to make a decision not to prosecute. At the time, I'll tell you, I thought it was motivated by partisanship. Mm -hmm. I don't actually think that anymore. Mm -hmm. I think it, and I don't know the guy, so he, I hope he'll forgive me for pop psychologizing him here, but it sure, or maybe he won't. I don't know that I care. So I take that back. <laughs> but, um, and this 
just truly offends my sensibilities as a former agency head, because as you pointed out, I'm a process guy, and I just don't think that when you're in that role that you get to have a personal stake in it. The world is not going to be fair to you as an agency head, and you signed up for that job, so you have to take it. And and so in some ways, it sounds like I'm reciting Rosenstein's memo about him, Hmm. but Rosenstein, to me, is an, is another unforgivable character in this play. I mean, I, I'm pleased that he stood strong yesterday, and I've been reluctant to criticize him too much because I don't want to see anybody go after him in an effort to get at Mueller, because that's precisely what I would see it as. If you go after Rosenstein, I know you're really doing it to try to get at Mueller, and you're trying to get at Mueller to subvert the rule of law. But for Rosenstein a long-time government official who should know better to sign a fraudulent memo that creates the distinct impression that he made the decision to let go of Mueller, I mean, Mm. Comey. Uh, And in fact, some member of Congress characterized it that way. He said yesterday in the hearing, when you decided to get rid of Comey, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the reality is the President of the United States has told us that that was a sham and that he had already made the decision. That, to me, is the kind of lack of candor that a lower-level FBI agent would have lost their job over. I, 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 my blood boils when I think of either of them. And the, and the, pious, the pious Bartlett's familiar quotations tweets um, <laughs> from Comey just inflame that in me more. Well, it does seem... <laughs> I mean, I tend to try, I think... I tend to try to imagine that 2016 was a fog of war for so many of us, as it has been since the inauguration. Just the disorienting violation of norms, the bloodlust for Hillary Clinton before that by people who, at least a few years ago, seemed balanced. Um, I mean, psychologically balanced. I mean, I don't know if this is adding up at all, but like thinking that you can it can ground yourself in some holy war of your own, which it seems like Comey and, and others have sort of done. And neither one of them is a right response, but it's hard to know what the right response should have been. For instance, you left government, you left the administration um, kind of to think, you know what, I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I don't have the soul, stomach and head for this. Um, yeah. And, um, so, yeah. Well, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm I mean, curious I, where this is going. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just interested in the reactions of all these old hands, if not principled yeah. people, to a kind of siege. Um, and you I know, don't think that's overstating I, it. I think it's all been very chaotic, and we're all in a new environment. I mean, at OGE, when I was there, we found ourselves trying to experiment with new forms of communication. And some of them the world found quite startling, and others they were more supportive of. Um, but we were still trying to live into the same mission, which was holding officials accountable. And the, and the tools we had had stopped working, so we tried new tools. But we, but we tried to keep ourselves grounded as much as we knew how to do by continuing to point in the exact same direction. And so the only thing that changed was our methods, but not our message. And so I guess I'd say people should take my comments about Comey and Rosenstein with a grain of salt, because 
I can't know what they were going through or what was in their heads any more than anyone listening can. I am ready to believe that maybe I'm wrong about those things. But they also reinforce in me a sense that this is why we have principles Mm -hmm. and traditions and norms so that you don't have to think. Because Mm. if you were describing this fog of war thing for me, I found myself thinking, yes, it must look very disorienting if you were to approach every single case fresh with no baggage mm. and half and no framework and have to assess individually what's the right thing in this case with no other context. But the reality is the federal government's very big and has been around for a very long time and has necessarily as a result encountered a lot of different situations. And so even though we're on in unfamiliar terrain, the solution, the cure to chaos is not more chaos, it's less. And you get less by sticking with traditions and norms and principles. Um, I um, Last question for you. How does this end? Is your, I assume you're not a betting man, but what do you say? We, we need to humble ourselves and, and just decide we can't predict the future. Um, that said... I would say that I have seen this year some structures hold that I wouldn't have expected to hold. Ah. And um, we've seen this administration chart a course and then respond to public pressure and change course after very determined-sounding pronouncements from the press secretary's office. And that is cause for thinking, yes, much is breaking down, but much is holding. And it gives me hope that maybe the Republic is stronger than we think, and it may pass this stress test. That said, though, it's going to depend on individuals to stand up and do the right thing. I said to somebody who once said, who's going to fix this? And I said, Um, saving our republic is a do-it-yourself job. No no hero is coming to save us. There's no one coming to save you. The cavalry uh, is on vacation this week. (sighs) So I guess what I'd say is we don't know what's going to happen. There's some promising signs. There's some negative signs. But we should not underestimate how high the stakes are. And you get people who say, oh, this is all hyperbolic language and and high drama, and and you should talk about it in calmer terms. I think that's the exact wrong thing, because anything that normalizes what is going on right now uh, is a threat to our republic. Thank you so much for being here. That was uh, immensely, immensely interesting, Walter, and I'll see you on Twitter. Okay, talk to you soon. Okay, bye. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. And, and you know what? You got to, for the holidays, follow us on Twitter. It's at RealTrumpCast. So season's greetings from Trumpcast, where we keep up the war on Christmas. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Lucky 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.